Blog Talk Radio. Hello there, and welcome to the Michael Calderon Show. We're so glad that you could join us this Sunday, and hopefully you did remember to change your clock back and you enjoy that extra hour of sleep. I know it just, you know, with the pandemic and everything going on, it just confused my body even more. So, uh, but I'm looking forward to today's show and uh, hope, hope that you're all staying safe and healthy. If you're, if you're here in the South Florida area and you need hand sanitizer, you need Lysol wipes, any of those items, you can always go to Zencare Pharmacy, 12140 uh, Miramar Parkway. They're right on the corner of Flamingo Road and Miramar Parkway, Zencare Pharmacy. They're open seven days a week. So, you know, for all your needs there. Um, and uh, also, the best Thai food in town right here in North Miami, Ricky Thai Bistro. Check it out. Check it out. So let me tell you about today's guest that we have coming on. And I, I do want to mention uh, Vanessa, my co-host, is off today, and she's enjoying the Sunday with family. Um, she'll be back for the next show. Um, so let me tell you about today's, today's guest. Um, former Detective William Nolan, um, who joined the NYPD in 1986 after being recruited from his job as a New York City corrections officer. Uh, he worked undercover for the NYPD Internal Affairs. Now, back then, it was known as the Internal Affairs Division, Nowadays, it's known as the Internal Affairs Bureau, and we'll talk about how that, uh, that bureau has grown. But he worked uh, in, in the Internal Affairs of the NYPD in the late 1980s and early 90s. He retired in 2005. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about um, one or two cases that he worked on, including, including one that uh, we have the New York Times article on. Um, and, and we're going to talk about what is internal affairs, what they do, what they're supposed to do. You know, in today's day and age with a lot of um, anti-police sentiment going around throughout the country, um, you know, people are calling for reform, they're calling for change, and, uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of different, different perspectives on this, you know, and uh, every department throughout the country has some form of internal affairs. Um, in a department as big as the NYPD, it's a very large group that are assigned to investigate within the department. So we're going to talk about that as well. Um, so without further ado, uh, I give you Billy Nolan. Billy, how are you today? Michael, thank you for having me on your show. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Um, I know we've been trying to make this happen for for a bit of time, uh, and finally the stars aligned. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. So let's uh, let's jump right in because there's a there's a lot of information that I'd like to cover. There's a, a lot of questions um, and questions that have been sent to me as well. So I want to I want to kind of start out. Let, let, let's talk about the beginning, 
right? So uh, you started your career in New York City as a New York City corrections officer, correct? That is, cor- that is correct. In 1985, when I graduated from college, uh, May of 1985, I went to the Corrections Academy, and I was a corrections officer from 1985 uh, until 1986. Um, during uh, While I was working, I worked at Rikers Island at uh, – jail they called um hdm which meant house of detention for men which was maximum security on rikers island and it was uh, a good experience uh, you learn a lot uh, as a correction officer about how uh, one side works versus another side but i had also put in for or i met, took the test for several other departments one of them being the nypd um corrections had called me first it was the first job out of college so i took it um when i was in corrections, I got notified that I was um, um, on the list or my background investigation had started for the NYPD. And while I was there, and that was in 1985, um, applicant investigations had given my information to internal affairs because they looked for people with prior law enforcement experience as to work with them when they came on the NYPD. So. I was approached while working um, as a correction officer by two members of the NYPD Internal Affairs Division, a sergeant and a lieutenant, and they asked me if I would be willing to work with them as an undercover operative, and that was the term they used. And after about a 15 or 20-minute discussion, I was not familiar with uh, how it worked, and I was still a member of the corrections department. So. I uh, respectfully declined and told them I'm not there yet, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens when I get there. About six months later, I was sworn in. Let me ask you, I'm sorry, is that a common practice where where they recruit from – from other law enforcement agencies? Well, no, they, they didn't actually recruit because I was in another law enforcement agency. It's because I had taken the test for NYPD and my background investigation had started. So they know who the applicants coming through the system are going to be. They don't just arbitrarily gotcha. go to a, to a police department and try and recruit people. No, they don't do it. They didn't do it back that way, and I'm sure they don't do that today. But um, since they knew I was heading in that direction based on I took the test, I passed, I scored high, and I was on the list, and my background investigation had begun, I was assigned an investigator from Applicant Investigations Division to do my background check. All, all law enforcement agencies have that, that uh, requirement these days to do a background check on you before you go into the academy. Um, some are more extensive than others. State police agencies are more extensive. Anyway, getting back to the point, Once I got into the academy, um, that was January of 1986. Actually, it was uh, January 9th, 1986. It was very easy to remember because it was 1986. The date is the same. I was approached while inside the academy by the same two individuals, a lieutenant and a sergeant from Internal Affairs Division. And now that I was in the academy, they asked me again if I would be willing to do the same same, uh, recruitment uh, um, thing and I asked them why are you why are you asking me and they said well Chief Guido at the time John Guido had a program that was called the undercover operative program not to be confused with the field associate program which was like crime stoppers the undercover operative program was a program where you would be 
involved, placed, tasked to do things for internal affairs, and if necessary, wear a wire, if necessary, testify in court. The field associate program, which some people know about, um, was not that. Field associate program was, was just you could call a number and just give the information and remain anonymous for your entire career. So this program started by John Guido prior to me getting into the New York City Police Department. That was the second attempt that they made in the academy. And then uh, I think two weeks later, they actually came to my home, same two guys, and asked me again. So the third time I said, okay. I figured after this, you know, uh, at this point, if, if, if it's they're pushing this hard, I guess it's important. And I agreed. And then I became I went down to 72 Poplar Street while still in the academy. I met Chief Guido. I was uh, he explained to me what the program was about and said uh, these are the requirements. And I agreed. And then I went back to the academy, finished out the other five months, graduated. And then I was placed in a command. Okay. Now, looking back on that day and everything that's transpired in your career, Mm -hmm. do you regret that move? No, not at all. I don't regret it at all because uh, I look at it as uh, I was being approached legitimately by a legitimate uh, organization asking me to help them because of my prior law enforcement experience. I didn't uh, have the same mindset that some people have today uh, recovering for bad cops. I didn't have, I mean, I knew police officers, but I didn't have any uh, family or close friends that were police officers to tell me otherwise. So just like anybody else going through the academy or going into the police department, you go in with your eyes open thinking that you're going to be doing what you're supposed to do. So if somebody tells you we need your help with this and you're inclined to volunteer because you want to be a police officer in the first place, you tend to uh, agree with that. Um, once I got in there, it became, it, it became different. It became uh, a whole different uh, system of how things worked and how they didn't work. And uh, I could expand upon right. that in any, any way you want. Um, just let right. me know what you want to know. Right. Well, we do have a lot of listeners that are not law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So if we can just give a, 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 a brief synopsis on what the, the actual role of internal affairs is. Okay. Uh, I guess I could sum it up uh, as best I can. Is like, um, uh, let me think. Uh, upon being assigned to the internal affairs division, I started to converse. This is actually being assigned in the division itself, not being an operative in the field. Um, right. I, I was assigned there I found out that a lot of the people that came to internal affairs uh, had come, not a lot, but a significant amount in handcuffs, meaning that they were arrested at some point um, only to now be bosses, sergeants and lieutenants uh, on the job. Uh, Apparently uh, they were the ones who got caught up in criminal activity while on patrol, but were given the opportunity to give up or quote unquote rat on others who were not as bad as they were. Uh, That's where the term meat eaters and grass eaters came from. The meat eaters would get caught, give up the grass eaters. The grass eaters would face departmental charges and then be terminated from the department while the meat eaters were allowed to stay on the job and take promotional exams. Um, 
it's uh it's 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 difficult to to explain to someone who doesn't understand well it's not difficult i can explain it but the internal affairs division back then and i'm sure the uh, bureau today which is a, a bigger organization is uh designed right. to protect the reputation of the police commissioner whoever the police commissioner is and um, what IAB does is protect the reputation of the police commissioner and, <clears throat> excuse me, whomever he designates to have that protection. Um, the actual purpose and mission is to control, manipulate, obstruct legitimate complaints and allegations of misconduct against members of the NYPD. That happened while I was there. I participated in that. But um, since then, IAB has now also became become weaponized. And what I mean by that is if somebody within the department or a retired member of the department makes a complaint of misconduct uh, against another member of the department or a unit or, 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 or any place, they retaliate against them in an active way, as opposed to just not calling hmm. them back scuttling their, their, their investigation. They will retaliate. The best example of that is what happened to me and what happened to Francis, um, uh, Joseph Stokes. I'm sorry, Joseph Stokes. And if you look at his name in, recently in the New York Post, he was a police officer, a very active police officer who had been retaliated against. And just to go backward, even in time, the best example of retaliation where NYPD was weaponized against somebody was Joe Sanchez, and that was a long time ago. But he was the prime example of how the NYPD can be weaponized to hurt somebody, especially internal affairs. Right. And j just to, just to kind of clarify on something, um, and, and again, it, it's because a lot of the listeners, you know, are not law enforcement and, and don't have – Right. familiarity with the NYPD. Now, obviously, we have a great deal of listeners that are retired members of the service and some still active members of the service. So they understand, and, I, and I, right. I'm, I'm asking them to be a little patient because I want to make sure that, you know, those that are not law enforcement types understand. Right. In terms of members of internal affairs, essentially, right, because, you know, you always hear – the rumors you always see in movies and books and different things that, you know, members of internal affairs were always folks that got their, got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and then had an opportunity to, you know, to bring down others, if you will. But not, not, not all, in many not instances, all. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, not, I, I, that's what I'm getting to that in many instances right. like okay. yours, you were you were recruited from the applicant process. Correct. Right. That is correct. That is so, correct. So, so it's kind of like two different two different trails there, if you will. Well, the the perception in within the NYPD back then, and I'm sure today also, is that anybody who works for internal affairs or works in internal affairs had to get caught doing something, and had to be turned to cooperate against others. And that has happened. And I can tell you several uh, cases where that did happen. Um, Michael Dowd was a case, but he, he, 
he did not get turned. Okay, he was uh, running wild in the seven five precinct, but that's a separate issue. Right. The, the case of um, in 1986, there was a thing called the um, the, the the Buddy Boys. And, uh, uh, yeah, investigation in the, in the the seven seven, and yeah. it was Winter Winters and seven, Magno. Seven. Yeah, right. Two officers, Winters and Magno, they were actually caught. Okay, um, I don't know the circumstances of how actually they got caught, but they were caught in a way that they were asked to cooperate. Well, they were forced actually. They were they were they were faced with the information, and they decided to cooperate. As it turns out, they were the ones that were the worst ones, meaning they were the meat eaters. Mm. And they gave right. up or, or they would wear wires on guys doing less than them. 7-7 um, seven, seven broke in 1986, I believe it was. I was in the academy when that happened, actually. I remember that. And that was one example of modern day. But when I got to internal affairs, I, I saw guys that were there from the 70s. Okay, which was a decade earlier, who actually came right. to, uh, and that you're talking nap commission stuff. You're talking stuff where guys were collecting pad money, uh, doing actual crimes, either burglaries, stuff like that. They they were brought in. They were told to uh, cooperate or asked to cooperate. If not, they would face prosecution. They chose to uh, cooperate. I don't know the exact details of what they gave up back then, but those guys. Who, who did that ended up becoming first, second grade detectives. Okay. They ended up becoming uh, sergeants and lieutenants. I don't know if anybody ever rose to the rank of captain. I can't say for sure, but definitely sergeants and lieutenants. Right. And that's, that's how IAD was run for, for quite a while back in the day when it was internal affairs division, where they would bring somebody in right. who, who they felt was dirty or they knew was dirty and get them to cooperate, wear a wire, bring, you know, others into, into the mix and do that. Um, it's not that much different than the CI program, a confidential and pro, uh, a confidential informant program that many police departments would use, but in the regular uh, world, not the internal world. But at the same time, when you're bringing somebody in who has done this kind of activity and now they, they give up other people. If you want to use the term rat, that's where it is applicable. These people should not have been, in my opinion, not have been allowed to take promotional exams and become bosses. Okay. Right. They, 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 they should have been if not. Okay. If you want to make a deal and you don't face a prosecution, fine, but they allowed these people to stay on the job, become supervisors. And those are the ones who became the bosses within internal affairs that would order me to destroy documents. And this was going, this went on. I wasn't the only one. We used to burn documents, uh, case folders over at the Greenpoint facility in Brooklyn, the sanitation uh, facility, the incinerators, the incinerators might've been dark for the rest of the city. They weren't dark for us. Okay. Right. And then when they finally shut those things and, and down, what, what kind of, what kind yeah. of documents, what kind of documents? Anything. Okay. I'll give you an example. Joseph Trimboli's investigation on Michael Dowd. Okay, his investigation, Joseph Trimboli did a decent investigation or tried to when he was in Brooklyn South, uh, Brooklyn North FIAU, which is the field unit of internal affairs. His, his, his records were destroyed. How do I know that? I destroyed them under orders. Okay, I burned and shredded them. 
where he was doing surveillance on, on Michael Dowd and Kenny Urell and the other guys that all got locked up. You've got you to remember something. NYPD did not collar him, did not collar Michael Dowd. He was collared by, he was arrested by Suffolk County and the DEA. Okay. Right. Joe Tromboli was building a case and he was asking for help uh, from Internal Affairs and Internal Affairs was telling him to, to, to knock it off. But they couldn't tell him to knock it off in a way that they would uh, try and hurt him because that would look really ridiculous. But they would they would make for him to move forward. They would say they wouldn't authorize him to work when his uh, they wouldn't give him any kind of surveillance equipment, stuff like that. But he did produce worksheets, a case file, and those cases came back to Internal Affairs, and we would see them. And somebody in Internal Affairs, a certain boss or certain bosses, would order the detectives like myself right. to burn and shred these things. Okay, when did this so happen the most? Did, did Just Michael Dowd? Go ahead. Did, did, I'm sorry. Did, did Michael Dowd have have someone protecting him? In terms of protection, it was just automatic. Meaning that okay, Michael Dowd is running wild in the seven five precinct, and he's doing what he's doing. That command roughly had 275 people. Everybody in that command knew exactly what he was doing. And when I say exactly, meaning they knew he was dirty. They didn't know the exact details of which thing he did, but they knew who he was. Okay. Um, the, 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 the screwy thing about it is a lot of those guys that worked alongside Michael Dowd, some of them joined in. And, and as, as his show, The 7-5, had indicated the, 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 uh, the story, and some of them um, went to prison. He went to prison for 12 years. But you got to remember, there were 275 people working alongside him. They all knew what he was doing. None of them actually would try and stop him if they could, uh, I, guess, I guess for right. whatever reason. And a lot of those, a lot, a good percentage of those people who were regular cops, guess what they did? They took promotional exams, and they are high-ranking bosses today. Okay, so you have a, mm. you have a situation where it's not a – a person or, or a chief or someone protecting him while he's doing this. It's just the culture. It's the culture. Right. Michael Dowd knew, knew he wasn't going to get, he knew that Joe Trimboli was following him. The one thing he didn't know is how IAD was protecting him, but not protecting him for him. They were protecting, protecting his commanding officer. Okay. Right. If, if the seven, five, if, if it had gotten out, if internal affairs had revealed, actually revealed what Michael Dowd was doing, that seven, five CO, the commanding officer would have been transferred or demoted. Because how could right. you let this go on on, on you know, or or the seven five co was tipped off, meaning they told him exactly what was going on. You gotta remember, Michael Dowd wasn't in the seven five the whole time. He was in the seven seven also. He started out over there when that when that nonsense started. Mm. So so when Ben okay. Ward was the police commissioner, everybody got transferred, and they all they, it's like it's like you you detonate a precinct, you transfer everybody, and now the guys that were doing that thing in the seven seven are not doing it in the seven five. That's how it worked. That's how it worked. So IED, IED was never vested in going after people because of protecting the commanding officers. It's as simple as that. Right. Now, w were you in internal affairs during that whole time um, when when uh, Buddy Boys was happening? No, that happened. That happened in that was the early 1984, 1985. I was in the academy in 1986. Gotcha. But, but gotcha. in okay. while I was in the academy, if I started January of 1986, I believe that broke um, 
before I graduated. So it was like midway through the, so March, uh, April around there, it was still cold out. So it could have been like March of 1986, if I remember correctly. That's when that happened. Yeah. That's when that happened. Yeah. And, in, and, in December of 86, I'm just, I'm just looking it up is when 11 guys were arrested from the seven, seven. Right. So that, and that's, I know, that's I know Mike McElary came out with that right. book. May he rests right. in peace, Buddy Boys, yes, that's which right. uh, I remember reading it, and mm-hmm. what an eye-opener that was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it was a, uh, a look into how, how things worked or didn't work. You've got to remember, IAD, the division itself, was, was augmented right after the Knapp Commission, which was around 1973 or so. So from 1973 up until the 1985-86, Internal Affairs Division was run by John Guido. And John Guido, Chief John Guido, was a, a chief that was um, – he wasn't the type of chief that socialized with other people, other chiefs. He knew at any given time that he would have to do investigations against uh, uh, other people, meaning – Smart like man. <laughs> right. Well, well, the thing is, what happens is, as like, like anything else, over time, the people that were loyal to him, you know, retired, and it just it laps back into that same malaise of covering for people because John Guido, even though he was a dynamic individual, you know, his lieutenants, his captains, so on and so forth, eventually retire like anybody else, and he retired eventually also. When he retired, he retired in 1985, I believe it was. It was, no, I'm sorry, 1986, because I had met him when I got, when I was indoctrinated into the program itself. He retired like two months later, and he did a uh, story with Lenny Levitt, may he rest in peace, who was a reporter also. Yes. Uh, right. Yes. And he he had said to Lenny, and he it, it's published on Lenny's website, um, that uh, there's going to be a major scandal in, within the next five years. The problem was John was a little bit wrong. It happened in, in less than a month because he knew he right. lost positive control. He lost positive control because they were keeping things from him. He couldn't do what it was necessary. Now, he had started the undercover operator program. I was a member of that. But from what I understand, there was only 25 of us citywide. I, I found that out later. And we, as undercover operatives, were tasked with gathering information to internal affairs only to have it scuttled, not to investigate. Right. That, that, it became an intelligence gathering unit, which it still is to a certain extent, where you gather information about the complaint, about the complainant, you bring it back to internal affairs, and then you see how you can scuttle it. And that's the word I'm going to use, scuttle. I would use another word, but I know I'm on the air. Um, <laughs> there's, that, that's how it worked. And that's how yeah. it worked while I was there also. Now, there are, there are people who say that internal affairs detectives don't do investigations. They don't do investigations in a traditional way that a squad detective would do, meaning a squad detective catches a case, can go knock on doors, interview people, and then check back with his boss, his sergeant usually. But NYPD detectives and white shields, uh, non-detectives, we used to call them white shields, they would do investigations under the direct orders of sergeants and lieutenants, which means you go out, you would do in, in interviews to a certain extent, mostly surveillance, and you'd bring back that information to internal affairs, to the division, and then if it, if, if it was bearing fruit, 
So if you have an allegation that somebody in a certain precinct is doing this and that, and it turns out that there is something going on and it needs more surveillance, that investigation will be taken away from the initial officers and given to another unit only to be scuttled. Right. Or, or just, and, or, or they go ahead. I'm listening. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I imagine in some cases, part of it was done to protect the reputation and or dignity of the department and or the PC or someone in a, in a high command. Correct. Which is the commanding officer of a precinct. And I'll give you an example of that. And this has to do with the modern day policing, the thing they call Comstat, where, where you're, you're held accountable for the crime in your, in your precinct. Precinct commanding officers back then and today, believe it or not, they do get bonuses for keeping crime down. Okay. They yes. do get, okay. That, that is a fact. And how do you keep crime down when you really can't keep crime down? Well, it's, it, it, you tell your subordinates, you tell the people that uh, work under you, um, talk them out of it, talk them out of it. Right. Meaning you have police officers responding to a scene of a person who says he was robbed and he was robbed. And you have these officers telling them, well, no, you weren't robbed. It was uh, you're misunderstood. It was a dispute. So what happens? Right. A robbery that actually takes place that has taken place is not documented as a robbery. Okay. It, it might be documented as, as a dispute. That was the model within internal affairs also to a certain extent, but it's also the model of the NYPD as a, as, as an operational organization. So when you have a, when you have a commanding officer saying, Hey, my, my, the stats of my number, my precinct are down, crime is down. And here are the numbers that prove it. Of course you can go to a number source because you're telling your people not to take reports or not even respond at all or, or respond so right. slowly to a scene that by the time you get there, the complainant is gone. The witness is gone uh, unfounded as they say over the air, 90 X is, is, is the, the radio code. Right. Okay. So you have that going on in the regular police department. You have it going on in the internal affairs division. You, it, it's, it's uh, not a pleasant feeling to know that when you call the police that they may or may not respond. And I'm not talking about modern day stuff. I'm talking about years and years of this going on. And, you know, people expect that if you make a police report out, at the very least, that the police are going to do something to, to help alleviate the problem. And that does not go on. I mean, I am familiar with other police departments. I've worked with other police departments, New York State Police, New Jersey State Police. But, I mean, they, they, they have a different dynamic, but this kind of behavior doesn't occur in those police departments at all. And if it does, it's, it's addressed immediately. Right. Okay, so that's, that's where right. we're at with, with that. But I'm going off on a tangent. But anyway, um, back back to the matter of yeah, internal but, affairs. Yeah, but you know, I, yeah, I, I do want to I do want to ask you about uh, this case that you had worked, uh, and and there was an article about it in the New York Times regarding uh, two officers, Bogert and Cawley. Yes, sir. Okay. I was T- tell us about to, that case. Yeah, at the time when that happened, there was a. The, the New York City, New York City uh, Police Department has 
task force with the various federal bureaus, FBI task force, DEA task force, ATF task force, ATF being alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which means that the task force combined of ATF agents, state troopers, uh, possibly, and New York City police detectives working in the same command. It's a ta- that's why they call it a task force. That task force had tapped into through a CI of guns being uh, run in the 4-6 precinct back in ni- the 1990. And what happened was the CI was able to identify police officers that were involved with that. And because the CI task force... Meaning confidential, conf- uh, I'm the sorry, CI meaning confidential yeah. informant. Right, the confidential informant in that investigation that was the ATF's confidential informant, okay, in that task force, even though it's a task force, he was an ATF informant, they tapped into two, well, actually it was more than two, but the first two names that come to mind, and of course it made it to the paper, and I can speak about it, because the non-disclosure agreements have expired, um, were Bernard Cawley and Tommy Bogert. Okay, Bernard Cawley and Tommy Bogert um, were two guys that worked in the 4-6 precinct back in the 1990s, actually came on the job the same time I did. I think it was 1986, believe it or not. And I was introduced, what happened was I was working in another unit with Inside Internal Affairs, and because of my physical appearance, they needed, they, they asked me if I would volunteer, or they asked me to, if I would participate in this operation with another unit with Internal Affairs to see what it's about. So they brought me in as the undercover for that operation, which is the one in the New York Times. And what happened was I had met with Bernard Corley and Tommy Bogart, mostly Tommy Bogart, for three or four times in a six-month period. And we would discuss uh, um, all kinds of things that he wanted to do and and Corley wanted to do regarding, believe it or not, robberies, uh, jewel thieving, what do you know, jewel Jewel heists and stuff like that. It was all fictitious, but this is what right. they wanted to do. Anyway, long story short, um, it got to the point where they came into uh, an organized crime outside the NYPD uh, group that was moving guns from Florida and Jersey into New York. I'm not, I'm sorry, from Florida and Boston into New York. And the feds, it was a much larger investigation with the feds, but they brought us in. They brought me in. I was the undercover, and I was tasked with meeting with them to set up a buy. And in the article of the paper, it says that um, a buy had gone down, but only two guns were vouchered or, or one gun was vouchered. And I can tell you for a fact that I took possession of 20 guns, okay, on the night in question. So in what the article, happened to the rest? Somebody else from another internal affairs unit that I didn't know took them. As I was sitting in the car and I paid $17,000 cash for these guns, those guns, most of them were handguns, 380s, uh, small handguns, but there were two machine guns. One was fully automatic and one wasn't. And at the end of that operation, those guns were seized, but the only guns that made it to the property clerk's office were two guns, one machine gun that was uh, fully automatic and one that wasn't. And the other guns just disappeared. And I mean... I couldn't tell you where they are today. I mean, I couldn't tell you then because they were taken from me during the operation, even though I was the one that made the purchase. Um, And they were taken from me by somebody else who worked for internal affairs, not ATF. And that was it. 
that was it. That 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 wow. in and but if you read the New York Times article, you would think, oh, it's only two guys. It's only this. It turns out that Coley and Bogart were involved with fourteen other guys, fourteen other right. officers that were were involved. None of them, except maybe two or three, went went to uh, went to trial. But there were fourteen others. They all got transferred. They all got transferred, just like wow. the, just like in the seven seven. When, when they found out the buddy yeah. boys thing and it, same, same operation. And that was it. The, the difference was this investigation was a joint investigation between the ATF and the NYPD. So only so much scuttling could go on. The ATF was, was Correct. a whole, whole different animal. They would, they, they'd lock, they would lock up the cops and everybody else. And they were going to do that too. But at the same time, the NYPD was very powerful still is in those regards. And, I get brought into the situation thinking that I'm participating in an investigation where we're going to bring down these bad guys who are happen to be cops selling guns. Yeah, too. But right. what happens to the rest of the guns? So the, the, the whole thing was to save the, uh, the, the reputation of the CO of the 4-6. Because if it had gotten out that the CO had a guy under his roof selling 35 guns, that CO would, would, have, been in, would, would have been sent packing instantly. Right. But – you got to protect that. Do you, you remember who the CO was at the time? No, I don't. I don't remember exactly who it was uh, because I was too focused okay. on the other aspect of what was going on. I mean, I'm sure I could find out, but uh, I, don't, I don't recall who it was at the time. I'm sure he's retired. I mean, that was, right. that was, 19, that was in 1990. That was a long time ago. Right. You know. Sure. But, uh, but, you know, in reading the New York Times, in reading the New York Times article, right. um, my first thought, even before, you know, this interview and, and us talking about this case, my first thought was there's more to this. Oh, yes. Like I felt like this was just a little piece of it and that there right. was a lot more to talk about. Right. right. You can you see know, in the article. And, where they, and where clearly, they... clearly it was right. scaled down. Right. You can see in the article there's a yeah, reference. Yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say, Bill? Yeah, Chief Sullivan was saying how there's just these are just two guys and how they were downplaying it. It was almost as if they wanted to to believe um, that it was it was limited to two guys. It was not. It absolutely was not. And um, Chief Sullivan was made aware of the fact that it was many more guys, and yet he 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 lied, you know, uh, to to the to the paper and, and in that organization. And how do I know there was a there was a problem? Charles Hines was the SPO, the Special Prosecutor for police corruption back then before he became the Brooklyn district attorney. And when I was inside the office working, trying to transcribe the, uh, the tapes of the recordings that we had, there was a very, very large, large, huge argument between the CO of the, um, uh, not the committing officer, the uh, Lieutenant who was assigned to the uh, ATF unit, the NYPD Lieutenant and the ATF agent in charge over going to the press. The ATF did not want the NYPD to go to the press on this because the investigation was still active and there were more players, more pieces out there, but they, they ignored him. They ignored him and they went to the, to the New York times of all places and told this story about, Hey, we're rooting out corruption. We caught this guy. And, and that killed the entire investigation. Those two lines of guns that were coming into New York from Florida, from, you know, they all, they all went to ground, had gone to ground. And that's a term they use gone to ground and that investigation uh, subsequently uh, didn't go the way it was supposed to go ATF was not happy about it I was pulled out of there brought back to internal affairs to wash cars 
basically. All right, back to back to IAD. Go wash some cars. And they would. That, that's what they right. did. They would take guys. They would take people. Use them to gather information, like myself. Once you brought the information back, other people would scuttle it. In that particular situation, those guns were scuttled. That investigation was scuttled. And that's the, best, that, that's the one thing I can point to that actually went to the paper that I was involved with. Everything else that I did never made it to the paper because it never got that far. You know, when, when you're scuttling right. stuff. Well, the- <laughs> right. Exactly. But here's, here's the goal the was for it I'm not sure, to get there. <laughs> I'm sure whoever's listening to me speak right now, and if they know this investigation, they know what I'm talking about. They're going to know exactly what I'm talking right. about. Okay. And the right. sad thing is the officers that were involved with this, the, the uh, people who were trying to do the right thing, you know, you, you have somebody of a much higher rank overruling you, not overruling you, but telling you what to do. And what are you going to do? Say no. You can't say no. Right, right. You have, you have to follow you right, unless, right. unless unless you want to be reassigned or demoted or, or whatever. And that's how it works. And I'm sure it works the same today. And I'm, I can only speak from right. my experience being personally involved at that level when it wasn't that bad. Okay, when I say not that bad, today it's a much bigger problem in the sense that the NYPD hires people without doing proper background checks, if you ask me. Okay. The the the, the background. Well, you know, I, ironically, ironically, I'm just going to jump in here a second. Sure. Uh, we're facing that same issue right now in Broward County, Florida. Yes. Where we have a law enforcement officer who was appointed as the sheriff. He was appointed by the governor because the mm-hmm. previous sheriff was removed by the governor in a, in a political move. I remember. And now the things that have come to light um, is that, you know, he had, he had a bunch of, let's say criminal issues that occurred. Right. um, As a juvenile in which someone was killed and a couple of other issues that, that never made it on a background. And he served in a local department for years. And then when the governor decided to appoint him, um, you know, it it was a rush job on the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. A rush job that, you know, that was done in about 24 hours. You Mm -hmm. and I both know you can't do any any due diligence in that amount of time. And now a lawsuit was just filed on Friday. A lawsuit was filed here in Broward County by the uh, the opponents, the folks that that ran against him and uh, that are running against him in a current election, which right. uh, obviously election day is this coming Tuesday, and they're right. trying to invalidate him uh, as a as a candidate, saying right. that he's unqualified to serve. But um, th- you know, so that's an example, and and the reason why I bring that up, Billy is because whether it's the NYPD, the LAPD, something in uh, an agency in South Florida, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there are issues systemically inside the agencies that have gone on for years and, you know, continue to be uh perpetrated time and time again. Now the NYPD is a good example because obviously being one of the largest 
police agencies in the country with, you know, an internal affairs bureau. Uh, I don't know how, how big the bureau is now, but, you know, they've had systemic problems for years, for years. Um, and, you know, we can look at, we can look at older cases. We can look at, you know, what happened with Joe Sanchez. We can look at, you know, uh, other officers that, you know, have, have reported, that have reported wrongdoing in the department. And, and as a result, they faced backlash, you know, uh, and, and I'm sure when you were in internal affairs, um, how often did you see that where someone had come back, forward back. Uh, against against the boss and then right. boom? Back then when it was internal affairs division, just to let you know the size of the numbers of people, internal affairs division had 157 yeah. assigned to it. When it became the bureau, it went up to like close to 3,000. That's just for numbers stats. But back wow. then, the, inter- the internal, but don't wow. forget, back then internal affairs division had, that was a division at 72 Poplar Street. The the boroughs had what were called FIAUs, field um, field units, field internal affairs units, which fell under the borough commander but were answerable to IAD, all part of the scuttling process again, okay? The scuttling was right. always a thing that went on. When, when Campisi was in charge of internal affairs for as long as he was, it was scuttling, okay? And that's always been the, the backbone of how you how you keep – you know, the appearance that IAD is doing something when they're really not. The weaponization only yes. recently became only recently became an issue with the new commanding officer. Well, it's not a commanding officer, the new boss of Internal Affairs Division, and that's Joseph Resnick. Deputy Commissioner Joseph Resnick is the CO commanding officer of Internal Affairs Division Internal Affairs Bureau now. He was appointed by Bill Bratton. Bratton appointed him as a three-star chief. He aged out. And what that means is he reached mandatory retirement for his rank of uniform at 63. And then once he reached that age, you cannot be in that rank anymore. So they let him retire from that rank and they made him a deputy commissioner still in charge of internal affairs division. He is the one that has weaponized IAB against people who make complaints of um, misconduct that they're aware of that whole thing if you see something say something which is the which was the motto in the transit police if you see something say something yeah technically that was supposed to apply also for internal affairs if you want to report corruption you call the action desk they don't call it the action desk anymore they call it the command center and if you ever had the opportunity to call the command center if you ever get through you'll never get get to the point where you'll you'll hear somebody getting back to you telling you this is what's going on with your case it's ne- it, it never gets right. to that point that's the scuttling now if you're persistent and you keep calling and you know there's a problem going on and you and it's a legitimate complaint they will weaponize I, iad and then go after you they did it to me okay they did it to stokes they did mm-hmm. it to francis okay they did it to other other um members of the NYPD, some retired like myself and others who are active NYPD. Okay. If you look up, like I said, Joseph Stokes, and his, his story is in the New York post. It explains how they did it. And um, it's, it's, it's a shame because how are you supposed to, you know, uh, uh, 
convince the public that IAD is or IAB is supposed to be doing what they're doing when you're going after the people who are supposedly giving you the information. And that's what's happening today. And that's a problem. Um, I don't see this going on in other police departments as, as I'm aware of. I mean, I don't have experience in dealing with LAPD. That's the West coast. Um, but I can tell right. you from experience locally that the New York state police don't do this. The New Jersey state police don't do this. Connecticut state police, Pennsylvania state police, they have a different code. Okay. Right through going through the Academy up until the day they retire. You don't see this kind of stuff going on at that level with them. Granted, they're a smaller department, but they don't do this. Okay. One, probably because they have a better code of conduct of, of, among their own, uh, on their own members. And that's what's la- that's one of the things lacking in the NYPD. You don't have that. You have the people, like you said, the Broward County uh, Sheriff getting through the system uh, with a questionable background. Um, that happens in the NYPD, too. And it's not because these are arch criminals, but these are people that you necessarily wouldn't want on the police department because they have questionable backgrounds. Okay. And that's a shame. Right. It's a shame. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you remedy that? Well, I mean, I'm sure if you sat down and discussed it, you could, you know, think of ways that, to, to remedy it, just be more thorough backgrounds. But uh, in this day and age, in the, in the culture that you're seeing today with the, the anti-police thing, that's even more difficult on top of what, what's been going on for years, the systemic problems that you've mentioned. So um, right. it's, 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 a, it's, and, a, and it's a difficult task. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know, you, you bring up a great point, too, um, in regards to backgrounds, because I know that, you know, let, look, let's face it, um, this is a difficult time to be a cop anywhere in the country, you know, uh, particularly in certain in certain jurisdictions that just, you know, no matter what the officers do or don't do, you know, the, the folks are still going to kind of be against them, if you will, you right. know, um, and, and, and of course, look, we've had throughout the country, we've had, you know, um, many instances where law enforcement um, used force that was, that was more than necessary, you know, Correct. that was, that was really, you know, uh, an abuse of power. Yes. And and that's going to happen. I mean, you know, we don't have a perfect system, right? Correct, correct. Um, but I don't want to take away from the majority of law enforcement officers that are doing the right thing, that are working with the community, that are only using the force that's necessary. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in, in, with, with the anti-law enforcement sentiment that's going on, and it's been going on for some time. Recruitment is a huge challenge now for law enforcement. I've had discussions several times this week on recruitment alone with folks from different departments. And I know that it's a challenge um, because, again, you know, folks are feeling like, well, if, if, if the public is not going to support me, why am I going to put myself in harm's way? And as a result of that, and, and, and I want to ask you your opinion on this, because we're talking, we're also talking about backgrounds and that whole process. Right. As a result of the 
challenges in recruitment cutting corners now on backgrounds? Are we yes. letting letting certain things slide that maybe in the in the past wouldn't fly? I would have to say yes, only because I saw that happening when I was on the job going through the process. My corrections uh, background um, investigation, which was for the Department of Corrections, was a more extensive than one was for the NYPD. And the reason why was the NYPD relied on that other investigation, meaning that corrections already did the background on me. So right. NYPD, APD, Applicant Investigation Division, looks at me and says, oh, well, we don't really have to do an investigation on this guy because corrections already did it. The problem is, right. you know, you still have a responsibility to do your job independent of what another agency found out. That's one way of cutting corners. As much as you'd like to have somebody with prior law enforcement experience in your department, and that's great if, if, if it helps, you can't you can't remove the remove the uh, um, requirement of doing the background investigation. Now that was happening. Correct. And then you're starting. I mean, when I was in the academy, uh, I remember they they uh, brought two guys out in handcuffs in my class in my company class. And what had happened was they had not disclosed uh, previous arrests uh, while they were in the military, and those records were harder mm. to find. Okay, but that was then. So I don't know how extensive they are now in terms of being able to go back and find um, uh, information on people. I know that when NYPD officers wish to go to another agency, the NYPD does not cooperate with those agencies, meaning if if you're an NYPD officer and you want to go to, let's say, I don't know, Nassau County, Suffolk County, or any any other police department. Even here in Florida. Even they will in not, and, and, and you, as a new applicant to that police department, have to put down your prior employment or your current employment, and then that department, whether it be Broward County, Nassau County, goes back to the NYPD and asks for that information. They won't give it to them. They will not right. give it to them. And that, that in itself is a problem because they, they want to retain their people, but at the same time, that's, not, that, that's improper if you ask me. I mean, I mean, yeah. some people want to change jobs for reasons of locality, of family, whatever the reasons are, and now you're holding them back and not allowing them to do so. That's just the other end of it. But I want to get back to real quick about when you say that, um, and I agree with you that most cops out there, and I'm going to talking about not just the NYPD, everyone that goes out there wants most of them, nine, let's say 90%, 99%, want to do the right thing and do a good job, provide for their families, serve their community, serve the public, enforce the law. Yes. The problem happens when you have one or two or maybe enough people at a higher rank that are not such, uh, how can I say it? They, they, they will give improper orders. And then all those good cops that I just mentioned to you will go lockstep with the orders of a bad chief or a bad commissioner in a sense that they will do things that they know aren't right, but they don't want to lose their job. That's a problem. So now you sit there and look and say, well, how can they all be, this is what the public doesn't understand or they do understand is that when you hear people blanketly say that all police officers are bad, they're not all bad. 
Okay, I agree they're not all bad, but, and here's the but, if you have a chief, if you have a deputy commissioner that becomes a tyrant or does these things in a way, those so-called good cops, and they are good cops, will fall in lockstep and become tyrants just, you know, for as long as it takes. That's a problem, right. too. Okay, the difference right. in the NYPD is they, they how could I say this, the term whistleblower and rat. They get confused and conflu- can, uh, confused a lot of times. The term rat is the term that you would use, that people would agree, if somebody who was involved in criminal activity got caught and wants to give up others to save himself. That's, what they, that's traditionally what most people agree is a rat. However, in the NYPD, a person who's another officer who sees something going on or reports it to his boss to this or, or – see something, say something, they get lumped into that rat, meaning they call them a rat. When they're really not a rat, they're like a whistleblower and a rat. That's another problem with right. NYPD. Okay, you have a culture of ratting out. That comes from La Cosa Nostra. That comes from, from, from Sammy right. the Bull Gravano. Sammy the Bull Gravano is the best right. example of, of a rat. And when you try and equate members of the NYPD or any police organization who report on misconduct as rats, that's a problem. That's how Resnick thinks. Right. Right, for sure, right, for sure. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. And and you know, what do you think is uh, what what do you think it's going to take to rework this whole system with internal affairs, whether it's New York or somewhere else? I mean, do you if think I, that if, there's if, a systemic were, problem that yeah. needs? Okay, whether the problem is systemic or not, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. You can debate on, on, on the severity of it. If I were in a position being asked to help the NYPD, I would the first thing I would do is look for a department that does it right or better than they do, and then you know share, you know inquire. Okay, I'll give you an example. I still get questions from from relatives and friends that my my son, my daughter, they want to go into law enforcement and they want to they're thinking about the NYPD. The way the the way I think see things, I tell them to avoid the NYPD, and that's my personal uh, professional opinion. I say if they want to do law enforcement properly, look for a state police organization. In New York State, I keep saying it again, New York State Police, New Jersey State Police, Connecticut State Police, Pennsylvania State Police, because their standards, their way of operating, from what I can see from upfront right. personal experience with them. So if I'm in the NYPD and I w- I'm being asked to, how can we improve our standards? The first thing I'm going to do is either, you know, go myself to that agency or send my people and then brainstorm with them. Like, how do you do this? What do you do? It's going to, I mean, my guess it's going to turn out that it's going to require a lot more work, a lot more due diligence. So if you have right. a guy that's coming on the job, you just don't pass off the fact that he was uh, a correction officer before, or he worked at w- wherever you have to go knock on some doors. You got to talk to his neighbors. You got to go back to his school teachers and find out what kind of person he was. That takes work. That's right. effort. People don't want to put the effort in for whatever reason, uh, and 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 that's what happens. Um, you have to also take into consideration into consideration that any police department, any police department, is at the uh, the whim of whoever the political leader is, such as a mayor or a governor. So if the tone is being right. set from the very top to to confuse people by saying you're with the police department, I mean, you support law enforcement, but then again, your actions don't dictate that. That confusion starts at the and within the ranks. 
And that's the best example right, of that right. is, is, is up here is, is, is Mayor de Blasio. And then uh, I'm not the only one that's spoken out on that. You can tell just by the computer. Right. And that, that's one way. But yeah. Like, oh, yeah. like I said, as I said before, I would be the one to look at other departments that are doing it right. I gave you the examples, New Jersey, New York State Police. They're right next door. Uh, ask them, you know, see how, how their model works and then expand upon it and apply it uh, uh, back to us. Or back to the NYPD. Right. I mean, I mean, what, what else? What right. else? Let me yeah. ask you. Sure. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, down here in, in Florida, you know, uh, one of the requirements, uh, I believe for every law enforcement agency, uh, if not, um, there may be one or two that don't do it, but uh, it's either a polygraph or a voice uh, voice stress, you know, uh, analyzer, um, right. which are, which are not done up in New York. Correct. Definitely not done in the NYPD. I'm not sure about the other agencies, but I, I think most do not do a voice stress analyzer or polygraph. Do you right. think that that would, that would bring any, any, anything extra to that background process? Of course. Of course, and, and any procedure that could assist in better screening applicants, of course. I mean, they, they, you you can't make yeah. an argument for not doing it. I right. mean, I can't make I right. can't I can't I can't make an argument for well, we shouldn't do this because what? Unless unless you're 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 of the opinion that you you want to keep things quiet and you want to keep scuttling things, and that's the way it has to go. Right. And live in the shadows. That's the mindset of that. You got to remember when I went through the academy I, and I was approached by internal affairs, I didn't think it was a, a horrible thing that they were approaching me. I was of the opinion that, okay, you know, they want to keep the department running right. And apparently that program right, right. that was in place no longer exists. I'm not sure. I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore. Resnick doesn't run it that way. And that's a problem. So anything that could help the NYPD, if you're using voice stress analysis, polygraph, or, or whatever, I'm pretty sure there are some federal agencies that still do that. Um, sure. Oh, why sure. not? Sure. Why not? I mean, I can't, I can't sure. make an argument against it. And I, all I can say is there'd be, there'd be no harm in, in, in trying it just to improve it. I mean, at the very least. Right. 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 Yeah. I, I know here in Florida, um, I've had, you know, multiple polygraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, you know, um, you know, it's, it's pretty standard throughout, throughout Florida, um, that that's just, that's just part of the, that's part of the background, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and I don't know why New York has, has kind of always been resistant to that. My guess is maybe, maybe the unions fight that, um, I don't. I can't you know, see the union making. I can't see the union. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can't see the union even making yeah, an yeah. argument or something like that against that. I'm sure if Pat Lynch was in charge of the PBA or Ed Mullins, they'd be for something like that. He's in charge of the SBA. I mean, they're they're, they're different right. guys. I mean, how, how how could you make an argument if you're the head of a, a police union as to well, we don't want to do polygraphs for rumor? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make yeah, any. sense. I yeah. mean, you you can't sustain a legitimate argument against that. And, and if you did, right. then then people are going to be looking at you sideways. So. Right. Is, is did the did uh, internal affairs back when you were in? Um, did they did they use uh, polygraphs? No. When uh, no. interrogating. 
subjects? No, no, we no. There was Not no, at all. No, no. We have to understand something. The, the, the internal affairs was 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 more interested in scuttling. So, if you found more stuff, you would just try and make that person's life as miserable as possible. Tell his CEO what's going on. Transfer him from Staten Island to the Bronx. Whatever, whatever it took right. to scuttle something, to disrupt it. That was the way it operated. Right. That's what they operated. They were never interested. To this day, when you see an NYPD officer getting arrested for something substantial, and I mean today, it's not done by internal affairs. It's done by another agency. Right. Because right, right. NYPD, you know, the whole mission of IAB is not to find corruption. And if we do find it, scuttle it, protect the commanding officer. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. And... Um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I mean, I figured it out right. you know, within, within a, less than a year from when I was assigned there, when I was actually there. And then when I was put through the paces of actually destroying evidence, shredding, you have to understand, when, when we were using the incinerators, when they turned them off eventually, we went to shredders. I mean, I'm talking about shredders of the size of coffee tables, all right? Right. And the one thing, when you, when you were burning something, you couldn't see it because it was in a plastic bag, a heavy bag. And you threw it into the incinerator or you lit it in a can and it was gone. When you shred stuff, you got to look at it. When the Marlin Commission did their investigation on the NYPD, I was there. You had to see those shredders going 24-7 on what they were destroying prior to the Marlin Commission issuing subpoenas to the NYPD to produce records. They were gone. Right. Gone. And how do I know? I destroyed them. I mean, did I want right. to destroy them? No, but I was ordered to. Okay. Right. And that's it. Right. And that's it. Did I complain? Right. You better believe I did. And it got me it got yeah. me removed from internal affairs real quick. Real quick. Right. Okay. Right. So Right. And 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 we'll be we'll definitely uh be talking about that the next time you you come on the show. Yes sir. I feel like uh you know, this has just been kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yes sir. And uh and we really we really have so much more to cover, but I, I do want to wait for some of those other things to be resolved um, for when you yes, come sir. back on back on the show. I want to thank you so much uh, for your courage and uh, and your cooperation, uh, particularly coming on the show today. Uh, I think it's been very enlightening. Um, and to the listeners, you know, if you have a question that you'd like me to pass along, um, definitely send me a message through the show page. I'm more than happy to uh to forward it to uh to William Nolan. Um and if you have an idea for a show, you know, definitely let us know. And if you've missed if you've missed part of this show or you want to listen to a previous show, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Michael Calderon show. Uh exciting news coming up. Uh, before we say bye to Billy, exciting news coming up is that um, we are going to be featuring the show now on Anchor as well, and that's going to put it out to Spotify and Apple and a couple of other platforms. So we're really excited about 2021 and what that has in store. Um, I know that uh, Vanessa and I, my co-host, we've had multiple, multiple discussions about this, so we're really looking forward to it. Uh, Billy, thank you once again for coming on the show, and uh, you know you're welcome. You're welcome to come back anytime you like. Um, you have a you have an open invite. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
All right, so there we have it, folks. Uh, that was uh, William Nolan. I hope I hope he doesn't mind that I've been calling him Billy. Um, but uh, you know, very very interesting um, what he's been through in his career. And again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more, but I wanted to save some for the next time he comes on. There'll definitely definitely be a part two to this. Um, so again, thank you so much for tuning in, for taking time out of your Sunday to tune in with us on the Michael Calderon Show. And uh, you can always call in during the show at 929-477-1785. That's 929-477-1785. And again, if you've missed the previous show, you can definitely go to the show page and listen to a previous show. Or send us a message and we'll send you the audio link to a previous show. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless America. Uh, make sure, make sure that uh, that you get out and vote this coming Tuesday, November third. It is election day. If you have not uh, submitted your ballot either through early voting or through mail-in, then please, please get out and vote. This is a very, very important election. It's very important that all votes be counted. And uh, and yeah, that's it. I'm gonna. I'm going to end with that. So thank you once again. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think we'll close out with um, the National Anthem. How about that? National Anthem by Janine Stang. Um, National Anthem by Anthem Girl, Janine Stang, who is a supporter of the show. She's been on the show. It's actually time to get her back on the show. Because uh, she has an amazing story. You know, she started out as a pop singer and now has dedicated her career to singing the national anthem. She has been to all 50 states, has sang in all 50 states, and makes it a point to reach out to our veterans. And uh, she sings the national anthem at uh, at various functions for the military and for veterans. She has a great program. Uh, go to her website, JanineStang.com. Um, she does a lot for Medal of Honor winners. You can you can join her club, basically helping to send greeting cards to the military, both active, retired, and and veterans. Um, but please check her out. Uh, definitely check her out, JanineStang. Dot com. That's J-A-N-I-N-E-S-T-A-N-G-E dot com. And she has an amazing, amazing voice. Here we go with Janine Stang.